0: So today we're going to continue into the first epistle of the Apostle John, so the first letter of John. And as we do this, I think it helps us to have a good idea of of who John is. Like, what's his story? What is he about? And what was he like? What clues can we take from his life that might help us discern his message for us today? So who's John? These are some things that we know about John. He was Before Jesus, he was a fisherman from Galilee. He was one of Jesus' first disciples. Jesus called him as one of his first disciples. He was uneducated. He did not go through traditional rabbinical schools or anything like that. And John is a guy that he doesn't seem to say a lot in the Gospels. Normally, he seems to let other people do the talking for him. So we have this idea that he might be kind of a quieter kind of person. He's referred to as a disciple that Jesus loved. And that's throughout the gospel of John. And truthfully, we don't know if John actually wrote that himself or if someone else kind of came along and changed that afterward. But we know that there was a special relationship between Jesus and John. John was part of Jesus' inner circle. He was one of the 12, obviously. Jesus had his disciples the 72, and then he had 12 disciples. And John was one of the three. He was in his inner circle one of Jesus' closest companions, and only the three were at special things that the other ones didn't really get to participate in. When Jairus' daughter was raised from the dead, that was only the three that John was a part of. When Jesus was up in the mountain and was transfigured and talked with two dead guys, with Moses and Elijah, John was one of the three that were there. And during Jesus' agony in Gethsemane, when Jesus faced the cross during those grueling hours, Jesus brought the three right up with him. So he was one of the ones that Jesus looked to for support. And interestingly, John is not really considered as gentle and considerate at first. Like we have this picture of him that he's about love because that's what we read from his letter. But that's not the way that he seemed to be characterized by when we first look at him. He was called one of the sons of thunder. Jesus called him one of the sons of thunder, and this appears to be because he had a lot of zeal, and he had kind of a fiery temperament. And what's funny is, like, we can look at Peter, the apostle Peter, and we, we laugh at him, because he was really good at putting his foot in his mouth, saying stupid things all the time. And John, in his circle, like, he did this too, so we have this place where he said, Hey, Jesus, can you do me a favor? I want to sit in the place of honor beside you when you come and sit on your glorious throne. I want to sit in that place of honor. So we see like a sense of ambition that he has. He wants to be in that place next to Jesus. He commanded someone to stop using Jesus' name to cast out demons because he wasn't in their group. How dare they? He's not in our group, Jesus. tell him to stop. So there was some recognition of the position that he held or the, the group that he was in. So I don't know if intolerance maybe or pride. And this is funny. When There was a time when the disciples and Jesus were going to go through a Samaritan village and the Samaritan villagers did not receive them. So John says, Jesus, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and burn them up? And this is a guy that's known for love. He's talking about burning up these villagers. And Jesus, of course, he he rebuked them for saying such things. But John, as we heard yesterday, was charged to look after Jesus' mother at the crucifixion. He was with Jesus at the cross. And early church history confirms that he cared for her to the end of her life. Paul identifies John, after Jesus left, as a pillar of the church along with Peter and James in Galatians 9. So he was a pillar of the church, pivotal throughout the early church history. He spent the latter years of his life in Ephesus, where we believe he wrote the fourth gospel. And this is kind of a fun historical fact that's recorded by Tertullian and several other early church writers that is not in your Bibles. But near the age of 90, John is this really old guy now. 90 is, 90 is getting up there, Right? So he's old, and John was arrested, and he was shackled, and he was taken before this emperor in Rome, Emperor Domitian. Now, Domitian is, uh, he came to be known as one of the most wicked and merciless tyrants in human history. So around 93 AD, Domitian declared himself Lord and God. Now, the thing with uh, emperors in Rome, like when they died, people usually worshiped them. Domitian didn't want to wait. He wanted to say, worship me now. I'm Lord and God. You'll worship me now. And that's kind of this character that, that John stood before. And Domitian ordered him to burn pagan incense to save his own life. And John refused. So Domitian was furious. And he, had him, he ordered him to be thrown into a vat of boiling oil. And so everybody watched as he was thrown in this oil and were completely in shock when he got out of that completely unharmed. And so Domitian then was terrified. He didn't know what to do, so then he exiled him. He said, away from my presence forever, and he exiled him to the order of, to the Isle of Patmos, which is kind of like a modern-day Alcatraz, like the worst of the worst people kind of went there. But he exiled him to the Isle of Patmos, where he's believed to have written Revelation. And then when Domitian died, John was able to return to Ephesus, and we believe that it's there that he spent his returning, or his remaining days. So, the interesting thing, in John we see a man who is transformed from being with Jesus, right? Transformed, he's seeing Jesus' heart of love and compassion day after day, and ultimately laying down his life for all of humanity, and where the masses thought that Jesus would accomplish his mission through power or through force, John watched him time after time after time as Jesus continually fulfilled his mission, not through power, not through force, but through love. And that changed this man that we are reading. So last week we identified two key purposes for John writing this letter. One, John desperately wants the reader to know Jesus. He wants the reader to know Jesus. The second is this theme of love found 46 times in this letter. Small letter. And we looked at this idea of koinonia, fellowship with God and with others, right? God wants us to have koinonia, fellowship with him and with others, yet sin separates us from that, and it makes it hard to do that. So today we continue with the second chapter of John's letter, and if you have your Bibles with you, you can turn to 1 John chapter 2, because we're going to sit in here for a little bit. So first John chapter two, right at the beginning of this chapter, we find another primary reason for John's letter. He comes out and says, He says, My dear children, I am writing this to you so that you will not sin. So that you will not sin. Now John has already told us that we we're sinful in the previous chapter and we need to confess our sin, but I think it's he's urging us not to take sin lightly. He doesn't want us to take sin lightly. He wants us to be aware of the dangers that sin has in our lives and to be on guard against it. Like, I want you, I'm writing this you so that you don't sin. But he continues, he says, If anyone does sin, we have an advocate who pleads our case before the Father. He is Jesus Christ, the one who is truly righteous. He himself is a sacrifice that atones for our sins. And not only our sins, but the sins of the world. So Jesus' work on the cross, his atonement for our sins, connects with his continuing ministry in heaven. And I think it's important to, just to note there that Jesus is our advocate, standing in God's presence. He's our advocate. He's for us. An advocate is someone who assists, who comes alongside, and gives aid in accomplishing a task or carrying a burden. And Jesus is that advocate for us. And we see an example of this in when he was still on this earth, when he said to Peter, and Peter is also called Simon, he says, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I have pleaded for you, Simon, that your faith should not fail. So he's our advocate. He advocates for us. And then I want you to notice on the opposite side is Satan, who is our accuser, and he stands in heaven accusing us. So to go on, John assures us that if we know Jesus, then Jesus stands as our advocate. If we know Jesus, he stands as our advocate. But how do we have the assurance that we know him? How do we have this assurance? And he tells us in verses 3 to 8. He says, we can be sure we know him if we obey his commandments. If someone claims, I know God, but doesn't obey God's commandments, that person is a liar and is not living in the truth. Those who obey God's word truly show how completely they love him. And that is how we know we are living in Him. Those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. This is an old commandment to love one another, yet it is also new. Jesus lived the truth of this commandment, and you also are living it, for the darkness is disappearing and the true light is shining. So John says if we claim to know God and we don't obey His commandments, you're a liar. You're a liar. Because our obedience to God is a demonstration of the love that we have for Him. And without obedience, we're simply giving Him lip service. We're just giving Him lip service. But obedience demonstrates that we know Him. And I think it's important for us to be careful because we can just focus on the the outward expression of a command and miss the, the connection inside. We miss the heart of it. And Jesus said the Pharisees and the religious leaders are really good at practicing the outward expressions of the law. And he told them that they're really good at cleaning the outside of the cup, but inside they're filled with greed and wickedness. And so while obedience is an outward expression of it, we want to be careful because love needs to be the underlying attitude of the heart. And he says, this is nothing new. This is an old command, and Jesus confirmed this. As he said, the entire law and all of the demands of the prophets, everything was based on these two commands. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. So love is this inward expression. and It's an old command. But John says it's also a new command. And when Jesus came, he rocked the world by showing us a new way to love. Redefining neighbor. Hanging out with the outcasts of society, all the rejects of society pushed off to the side. The sinners. And ultimately laying down his life. Constantly challenging the status quo. He gave us a new definition of love. So John warns us not to sin. Don't take sin lightly. He reminds us that Jesus himself is our advocate for when we do sin. And he teaches us how we can be sure that we really know Jesus. And we're going to jump to verse 15. In verse 15, John begins to warn us against some of the illusions, the temptations and false identities of this world that that move us towards sin. So starting in verse 15, he says, Do not love this world, nor the things it offers you. So Obviously, John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, right? That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So the world in that context is people, and God loves people. We're to love people. But here John is saying, do not love the world, which is more like a worldly system, the ways of the world. So do not love the world, nor the things it offers you. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you, For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and pride in our achievements and possessions. And these are not from the Father, but are from this world. And this world is fading away along with everything that people crave. But anyone who does what pleases God will live forever. So notice that all of these things, a craving for physical pleasure, craving for everything we see, pride in our achievements and possessions, all of these things are based on self. It's all rooted in selfishness which is completely opposite of God because God's way is all about love. It's about selflessness. And yet even when we have nothing in this world, God provides us everything that we need. He gives us everything that we need. And if we look at verse 16 again, I think we'll find some similarities from the very beginning of time in Genesis chapter 3 at the fall. The same types of things come into play. So I'm going to read from Genesis chapter 3, starting at verse 1. The serpent was the shrewdest of the wild animals, and Satan came in the form of a serpent. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. And one day he asked the woman, Did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden?" Of course we may eat from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said, you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. And says the woman was convinced she saw that the tree was beautiful, And it's fruit looked delicious and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it and then she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it too. And these are Satan's deceptions. The illusions that that he shows us. So if we kind of compare these two scriptures, these two passages, we'll see that they're Basically the same thing. So in Genesis 3, Eve saw that its fruit looked delicious. It was good for food. It was appealing to her flesh, the lust of the flesh. The tree was beautiful. It was pleasing to the eye. And she saw it and she wanted it. It The lust of the eyes and then she wanted wisdom. She saw that it was desirable for gaining wisdom, which appeals to our pride And when you go to 1 John 2.16, the world offers a craving for physical pleasure. For pleasure, lust of the flesh. It's appealing to our flesh. A craving for everything we see. We see it, we want it, we have to have it. It's the lust of our eyes. And then pride in our achievements and in our possessions. Pride. And Satan's use of these things in this world that garner our attention are the same things that he used on Eve way back in the beginning of time. It's the same things that he tried to use on Jesus when he was in the wilderness being tempted. And he tries to use on us. It didn't work on Jesus. The question is, will we allow it to work on us? Are we going to believe the lie and the illusions that Satan tries to deceive us of in this world? because there are essentially three things that Satan deceives us about. First one is who God is. He tries to deceive us about who God is. Did God really say? Did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? And when Eve tells him that, that she would die, the serpent says, no, you won't. God knows that you'll be like him, and he doesn't want that. He doesn't want that. So, in other words, if you believe that God loves you and has your best interest in heart, you're wrong. God doesn't love you. God doesn't care about you. God doesn't care what happens to you. He just wants to keep all the good things to himself. He's holding you back. And the lie that Satan tells Eve is that God doesn't want you to see your full potential because he doesn't want competition. He makes this implication that God is threatened by Adam and Eve's freedom. So Eve questions God's character. She questions God's character. She questions who he is. Can God really be trusted? How many of us have ever asked that question? Oh, you guys are really holy, aren't you? (laughs) Can I really trust God? Can I trust that God is who He says He is? Can I trust that God cares? Can I trust that God loves me? Like, are you even out there, God? Are you here? Are you paying attention because all this stuff is happening and I don't see you doing anything? Am I on my own? Are you listening? Can I trust you? We trust the character of God. We question who he says he is. And this manifests itself in things like worry and fear, anxiety, anger, depression, hopelessness. All of these things are a result of us really questioning if we can trust God. Are you who you say you are? So Satan deceives us about who God is. And as a result, he deceives us about who we are. Because they're inseparable. Our view of ourselves is inseparable from our view of God. Satan suggests to Adam and Eve that their freedom is somehow separate from God. And so when we accept a lie about who God is, we're also accepting lies about who we are. And consequently, our perception of the entire world is clouded by deception. How many of you have seen, I'll find out who my geeks are here, at least one of the Thor movies? Good? Lots of you, good. Jess likes to give me a hard time because she says I have a man crush on Chris Hemsworth. (laughs) Yeah, I kind of do. It's hard not to, right? He's like, you know, he's got the body, good-looking guy. He's got that, that he's got a good voice, right? Just like manly kind of voice. I don't have that, so I've got this. Yeah. Anyway, we're not talking about Thor. How many? Do you remember the, the character named Loki? Loki. Loki was a master of illusion. He was a master of illusion. And through illusion, Loki is able to expertly craft these lies that cause people to believe things that happened that really didn't or see things that really aren't there. It's an illusion. And those who don't know how to see through Loki's illusions believe that the lie, this illusion that he feeds them, to whatever end that he wants them to believe. Because they don't know how to see through it. And the the reality is that Satan operates just like this. He lies and he deceives. Jesus called Satan the father of lies and a murderer. Satan is the master of illusion. He can take anything in this world and make it look appealing and make it look like it's going to give us everything we need, everything we want, when he knows it's really not going to have anything like that. It's not going to have that effect. So he deceives us into believing all these things in the world are going to give us meaning and fulfillment and happiness that the ultimate reality is God and what he says. That's the ultimate reality. The ultimate reality is life, a life of fullness in God, but because our entire world is clouded by deception, we often fail to see the realities behind the illusions of this life, the illusion of success, The illusion that all these temporal things in the world can give us happiness and fulfillment and meaning. It's just an illusion. So, if we're not careful, we give in to these same kinds of lies lies about who God is and lies about who we are. And when we do that, we're left with a a deep void inside of us, an emptiness, because we're not looking to God as our sole source of life, which He is. But when we don't do that, we feel empty. Like, have you ever gone for a long time without food, and you get really hungry, you're, like, starving? And all of a sudden, like, things that you don't normally want to eat, like, they start looking good to you, right? That's kind of how it is. Because we're starved for God, the things in this world look like good substitutes to fill our need. Like, I'm convinced that that's why people started eating bugs. Like, these big, fat cockroaches and stuff, you ever see people? Or these spiders? Spiders? Tarantulas? People just eat... uh. When I was a kid, we had like Saturday morning cartoons. And we got up early, watched Saturday morning cartoons. And my sister was really hungry. And she would get... She'd go into the refrigerator and get a, a tub of butter. And she'd take it into the the living room, sit down in front of the TV with her butter and she would scoop out and eat butter. She's got problems. And the reality is it probably isn't just because she's hungry, it's just because she's weird, but I wanted to tell this story anyway. But when we're starved of things, the things that aren't as good start to look appealing. And my point is that emptiness that we feel results from our separation from God. And it makes all the things in this world look like good substitutes. So when we cease trusting in God to be our sole source of life, we believe this illusion. And then we believe we have to perform as a strategy for getting life, which brings us to our last deception. The idea that we can improve our lives by doing something. So we're deceived about who God is, about who we are, and then we think that we have to improve our lives by doing something. Because God apparently isn't as loving as he claims. Adam and Eve had to take matters into their own hands. Have you ever tried to take matters into your own hands? I know I have. Just, I got to do it, I got to get it. And the lie is that God can't be depended on. He can't be depended on to meet our needs. So if we really want to live, we're going to have to go out and get it on our own. We have to get it on our own. So when we do this, just like Adam and Eve, we go from human beings getting our worth, our value from God because of who we are, to human doings where we think we have to accomplish things, we have to do things in order to gain our worth. Like, I'm... Do you know what I'm talking about? Like, I'm a pastor. I grew up in church. And sometimes people have this tendency to think that, like, I'm way above that I'm beyond it. Like, I've got it all figured out. And I wish that was the case. But it's not true. Like, Pastor John and I still struggle. Sometimes we have to fight against those same kinds of temptations and, and these illusions. Um, Like... I have to fight this idea that my worth is dependent on what I do. I have to fight the idea that my worth is based on what other people think of me. I have to fight this idea that I have to gain people's approval. And that's one of my biggest temptations and one of my biggest things where I, if I'm not realizing it, I find that I have to find my worth in what other people think about me. And so what that does, how that plays out sometimes, is that I will work my butt off and do everything I can so that I don't have to disappoint people. I don't want to disappoint people. I don't want to let them down. And that seems kind of good on the surface. You know, like, that's a noble kind of thing. But the reality is it's still rooted in selfishness because it ultimately comes down because I want them to think well of me. So I don't want to let them down, and as a result of that, oftentimes I let down the ones that matter to me most. I let down my family, my wife, my boys, because I'm not there when I should be, and I'm focused on all these other things. Even though I know these things aren't going to fulfill, like sometimes like we're almost conditioned, in a sense, to believe that we'll, we'll get what we're looking for. And this is something that we can easily fall into as Christians. Um, when the vacuum within our innermost being is not filled by God, and it's not filled by our relationship with God, uh, we try in vain to pursue other things to, to fulfill us. Um, even Christian things, assuming that a worth must be acquired through our own efforts and through the world around us. So, a lot of us will try harder, we'll try to do better, we'll try to perform more, we'll try to become more righteous, or we'll try to gain more approval, and then maybe we won't feel empty. Maybe we'll feel like we matter. Maybe we'll feel like we're okay. But it doesn't work it just ends up kind of sucking the life right out of us. Because we weren't meant to live this way. We weren't meant to live that way. Fullness will not come until we can begin to rest in love and worth that is attached to our being and not our performance. And this is something that only God can give us. Our worth comes from him. So when we start to question who God is, his character, it changes who we think we are, and then we try to perform in order to gain this, and we get the whole wrong picture because we're basing it on our performance when our real value is attached to who we are, and it's because of God. So in his book, Seeing is Believing, Gregory Boyd, and I'm using some of his ideas today, Gregory Boyd writes this. He says, When we believe the lie that we can and must acquire value and significance for ourselves, apart from God, the world becomes a stage of idols from which we strive to get a life only God can give us. And God didn't create us to live as though our worth depended on what we do or what we have. And when we begin living like this, we, we start to hide then everything about ourselves that we don't want people to see. We start hiding. We don't want them to see these certain parts about us. And so then we're the ones that try to maintain this illusion that everything is perfect, everything's good, everything is just awesome. Different aspects of our lives start to get segregated. And this begins to eat away at us and it destroys us from the inside because, again, God didn't intend us to live this way. He didn't intend for us to live this way. It runs completely counter to the way that he created us to live. So we continue to look for sources outside of God to give us meaning and worth. And Greg Boyd continues. He says, As long as we subconsciously believe the lie that life can be derived from a source other than God, the increasing sickness of our soul just motivates us to work harder at looking healthy. The very thing that's making us sick. And it's a vicious cycle. And, you know, even as, as believers, as believers we can do a lot of the right things. But if we're seeking God's approval on us on the basis of how much we pray or how much we read the Bible or how much we go to church or how much we give to charities or whatever fill in the blank it is, if we're looking for our worth in that, we are striving out of emptiness rather than in the fullness of who God made us to be. And we're completely missing the gospel. We're completely missing God's heart for us. And it's simply our carnal flesh that is masked within cloaks of religion. So, on the outside, it might look pretty good, but on the inside, it still kind of stinks. So I'm going to read 1 John chapter 2 again, and I'm going to read this from the message. Um, I love the way this is worded in here. It says, Don't love the world's ways. Don't love the world's goods. Love of the world squeezes out love for the Father. And practically everything that goes on in the world, wanting your own way, wanting everything for yourself, wanting to appear important, has nothing to do with the Father. It just isolates you from him. The world and all its wanting, wanting, wanting is on the way out. But whoever does what God wants is set for eternity. Are you set for eternity? What illusion are you believing? What are you hoping for? What's garnering your attention? What are you looking for in this world that you think is going to give you meaning or purpose or fulfillment? Cuz it's just an illusion. And John wants to point out that these things don't satisfy. They can't. All they do is separate us from Jesus who is the source of love and life. He's he's the light that shines in the darkness. He's the bringer of hope. He is the prince of peace. He's eternal life. He's our ultimate reality. Like everything centers. Everything is based around him. So I asked this question when we started, and I think it's a good way to close today too. What in this world is keeping you from pursuing Jesus? what's got a hold of you? Are you willing to let it go so that you can grab on to Jesus? What is captivating your mind throughout the day? What excites you? Is it probably an indication of what Kind of things have a hold of us. The illusions we're believing. What's keeping you from pursuing Jesus? Can we pray? Heavenly Father, Lord, I confess that I can look at things in this world to give me meaning and to give me satisfaction when the the reality is that I'm starving for you. I sometimes give in to the illusions that the devil puts in front of me. And God, right now, like we want to acknowledge you as God, as our Father. That you are who you say you are. You are truth. You are light. You are life. You are love. And there is no darkness within you. And that our worth comes strictly from you, from our being, because you've made us valuable. And we can't ever do anything to attain it. We can't do anything to gain your favor, Lord, that you've already given that to us through Jesus. And it's only because of him that we can be in right standing with you. So God, thank you for that. And Lord, I want to pray that you would reveal to each of us our own tendencies, our own illusions that, that we have believed and maybe are even believing right now. God, I pray that you would expose those lies for what they are and that you would empower us to walk in your ways, seeking sustenance from you and you alone. Because that is what life is all about. That's how you designed us. That's how you made us. So I thank you that you are good to us, that you love us, that you care for us, that you are who you say you are, and that we can trust you. Help us to walk out, to walk this life of faith side by side with you, knowing you are present to us in every moment of every day. And help us awaken to the reality of your presence. We pray in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.